Let's go ahead and take our Bibles, can we? Matthew chapter 4, both here in this location or upstairs live streaming venue, other audiences such as our homebound audience that are watching every week, can't be here due to physical limitations. We want to have all of us get under the Word, so it's Matthew chapter 4 for the next two weeks. We'll root ourselves in this chapter as we talk about following and fishing. And we are praying again that God's word will do what it always does. So we're going to all get under it because at First Family, we believe wholeheartedly. Say it with me as we begin the year. It's the word that does the work. So Matthew 4 is where we're going to be just for a couple of weeks. Here's why we're there. I want us to look at what constitutes the core of our calling. When I say a calling, when Christ called us to follow, what was at the core of that? Like peeling everything away that goes with it, what was he asking and commanding us to do and to be? I, I thought about this. One reason was because last weekend, Julie and I went away for our 35th wedding anniversary. And so most um, years, we try to get away this for a day or two or longer. It's not always possible. But here's what we do every year on December 30th, 19, well, remembering the year 88. But on every December 30th, we'll kind of review and rehearse the vows that we took to each other. We promised. Now, we don't restate them. But we just make sure we catch eyes and we just in a very succinct way rehearse like this is what we promised. It was sacrificial love until they put us in the ground. Hell or high water, Lord willing, by his grace and power, we're together till we're dead. That's just a review and a rehearse. And so there's a lot that goes with a family that's bigger than that. Wouldn't you agree? There's a ton of to-dos and tasks and distractions and detours. You guys got to work through, but at the core of it, that's what we promised. And so we just review that annually, at least on that day, hopefully other times as well. That's what I want us to do as a church body for a couple of weeks. I want us to look at the core aspects of this calling we received from Christ to follow him. What's entailed in that? What goes with that territory? What did he call from us and what did we promise? I think a really good beginning point for that would be the calling of the very first four disciples in the New Testament. It's found in Matthew 4, as well as other Gospels. And those four are Peter and Andrew and James and John. And they were fishermen. And you're going to see in the story that Christ calls them to a different kind of fishing. Let's read about it, shall we? Matthew chapter 4. Here's how the story unfolds for us, beginning in verse 18. <clears throat> As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, and the word he there refers to Jesus Christ, then he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the sea. Here's why. For they were, say it with me, fishermen. 
Verse 19, I want to ask you if you would up front to go ahead and circle this verse. It's the real centerpiece of these five verses. It's the hinge, it's where we'll draw all of our understanding. It's the uh, core of the context, in fact. Verse 19, Jesus said to these fishermen, follow me, underline the word follow. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. So underline the word followed there. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, which means they must have also been what? Fishermen. So these first four followers were fishermen, and he uses that um, culture, that we'll call it a, a metaphor, he uses that moment to describe for them what they'd be doing later, he says, he, the Bible says he called them. Notice that he calls the last two, he tells the first two. Neither of these first four got a suggestion. No one in this story was asked a question. They were told and they were called and they came. And notice that the last two came in the same fashion as the first two. What's the first word of verse 22? Immediately. They left the boat and their father and they followed him. Underline the word followed and then connect all the underlined follows, would you? They followed him in 22, it says. They followed him at the end of 20. And of course, his first command to them was to follow. And of course, this following is, is followed up by this promise that he'd make them fishers of men. A very intriguing story of the very first four disciples who were called in the New Testament. Within this story, we can get a real sense of the core of our calling to follow Christ. I think there are at least three high-level realizations I want us to get today. I'll make these three somewhat briefly, then we'll follow that up with a couple of application points. I want to get you a little heads up on this as well. The first two will seem a little convicting. So we're going to poke and prod appropriately. The third point is going to bring a smile to your face. So if you're getting a feeling a little grinish and a little frownish and you're like, man, this is heavy. Hang in there with me to point three. It'll, you'll let the air out of the bag. It'll be wonderful. Notice, first of all, based on this story, the first encounter, that fishing is the higher, bigger purpose. Can you say the word purpose with me? Purpose. I love the way that in this story, he calls them out of fishing for fish. And he uses the same kind of uh, motif, we'll call it. And he says, I want you to now start fishing for people and I'll do this in you. So follow me. He's calling them from really, um, we'll even say maybe one occupation and he's calling them to a relationship because notice he says, follow me. It's very personal, isn't it? I became intrigued by this. Like, what did he mean when he said, follow me? Did you know that the word follow in its very root form comes from two other words? This is not rocket science, but it's simply the two words, um, come and go with. I mean, that's really the essence of follow, isn't it? You're asking someone to come to something which means they're leaving something and then they're going to stay with you and go with you. 
So follow really means to come and go with. And Jesus here is saying, leave one thing and come and go with me to another thing. What is that other thing? He's asking them, he's, excuse me, he's commanding them. He's telling them, he's calling them to leave behind a smaller purpose of just fishing. We can call it for money, for a living, an occupation, and to enter into a higher purpose, a relationship that focuses on really the, the main reason Christ was here. Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He's asking these four now to join me in this mission of reaching people, of fishing for people. So he's calling them to a higher, to a bigger purpose. Now, here's what I did not say. He didn't call them to a bigger profession. He didn't call them to a higher profession. Now, in all candor, these four and eight others did leave their professions and they became the very first, we'll call it full-time uh, workers. They were the foundation of the early church. We see this unfold in Acts. So it's very instrumental here that these first 12 had a lot of time with Jesus to be formed. And they gave their attention. But it's not always the case that you have to leave your profession to have a higher purpose. And I want to make sure we settle that. Because some could ask me, Todd... Are you saying that based on this text, I've got to quit my job to really follow Jesus? The answer is no. We have scriptural proof for that, first of all. Do you know that in Romans 16, when Paul is thanking so many of the believers who were followers, he lists some who were of Caesar's household, meaning they were employed by Caesar's government? Like politicians were in the family following Jesus, but that's not... That was their, they still had this occupation. Uh, there are other workers mentioned uh, in Acts 16. Lydia is a fine maker of purple. Apparently, history tells us she was a pretty wealthy businesswoman. Probably funded a good bit of the beginning of the church at Philippi, as well as some of Paul's ministry later. Do you know that Paul himself even made tents? In other words, he had a, another job. When he could have asked for support from churches, which he says this in 1 Corinthians 9, I could have asked for support, and at times he did. But he said, there were other times when I did not want to be a burden to the local churches and new believers, so I just worked my job. So scripturally, we can say there are times people leave their jobs to follow. There are times people keep their jobs. Here's what all of them are doing together, though. They're living for a higher purpose. That's why we don't necessarily live for a higher profession, but we all live for a higher purpose. Whose purpose is that? It is God's. Every single person here, regardless of our profession, should be living for God's purposes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Now, just think about that. And I'll just kind of put myself in the crosshairs for a minute. Did you know that, technically speaking, from a strictly definitional point of view, there's nothing more spiritual about pastoring? then there is programming. Like my job is not more spiritual than yours. There's nothing more worthwhile about being a banker than there is being a teacher. Or being a farmer or a fabricator. Like there's nothing inherently 
more valuable about these professions. Now, admittedly, in our economic culture, some professions have a greater return than others. There's disadvantages and advantages to various professions, and so people make choices based on those, based on their responsibilities, as well as based on their interests, the way God's wired them, personalities. All those things are fine. We have freedom there. But at its fundamental level, there's nothing inherently better about a profession. I would say to you and submit to you that really professions gain or lose value based on how well they're used for God's purposes. And that your profession is only a platform to that end, including mine. This is why in the Old Testament, often God's shepherds were misusing their platform and they were called wolves. They weren't serving God's purposes. So whether it's my profession, your profession... If it's not used for God's purposes, then it's a useless platform. It may supply some earthly needs. It might meet, uh, it might fill the gaps temporarily, but there is no really eternal value in it. But if it's aimed at God's purposes, if the ladder of your life is leaning against the wall of God's purposes, it doesn't matter what you do, it's highly valuable. Amen, church? So the question to ask is not necessarily what you're doing, but how are you using what you're doing? And why are you doing what you're doing? That's really what he's after. He's calling these four to a higher purpose. Don't just fish for fish. Don't just feed your family while that's a worthy goal. Let's do something even far greater than just taking care of temporal earthly needs. Man, let's put everything we have, all of our energies, Let's use our current platform for God's purposes. Amen. This is extremely freeing. Amen. Case in point, I was talking to one of our members just last Wednesday. God's been doing a pretty deep work in his life and in his wife's life, making some changes. It's had its own set of struggles as they've had to make adjustments and they've responded to the Holy Spirit's work and God's called to some things. And they're just working through it probably for the last nine to 10 months beautifully, but it is intense. And so we're talking and missions is one of the things that they both feel strongly about, especially him. And he's talking about would one day at a certain point he go to a certain place and is that what he should be doing? And so while we're chatting, I said to him, I said, you know, you and your wife, you are pretty successful at what you're doing. Um, I, can I just ask you a question? I said, why wouldn't you stay in the field you're in and just really be a really good sender. Like, I'm not against going. He said, he said, Todd, you're always asking folks to go. I said, I am and I always will. A church needs good goers, but not everyone should go because for every strong equipped goer, there has to be a solid set of senders who hold the rope on this end so I said to him, I said, it seems as though you guys have really good skills at, at perhaps sending, like you're pretty successful and you're asking me today, like how you can be more involved and more committed and more connected, and more generous. Like these are all questions really that I, I hear from senders. And he said, you know, I never thought about that. And I said to him, sending and going are equally valuable. Just don't be in the wrong position. And he said, I'll think about that. Maybe 
Our role is to continue to be really solid senders. I said, maybe it's to go, I don't know. But, but don't think like there's one that's better. What you want to do is use every single platform you have for God's purposes. And what I said to him, I would say to myself and to you. Amen, church? We need a church full of people who aren't worried about their profession as much as they are there as God's purposes. And then they use their profession as a platform for God's purposes. That's living as someone called to fish for people. So notice, fishing is the bigger or higher profession. Second observation is found in verse 19 as well. It's right after the phrase, follow me. He says that you will then be uh, fishing for people. So fishing is about people. The contrast here, of course, again, is it's not about an object. It's not about an item. It's about a, a relationship. It's very relational. And he says you're going to be fishing for people. But I think often we unintentionally overlook really what he's asking for. Because when he says to Peter and Andrew and James and John, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. He's actually saying, I'll, I'm going to use the fishing metaphor here. I'm going to turn you into the kind of people who will find fish who aren't in the boat yet and you'll get them in the boat. He's not saying, come aboard the boat. I want you to see a pile of fish I have and I want you to clean them a little better. He's not saying that. He's not saying, I want you to come into the boat, we'll shore and we'll build a fire and you can cook them better. The, the implied, clear meaning is we're going to find fish who aren't in the boat. I'm a terrible fisherman and terrible analogy probably here, right? And we're going to make sure that we have new fish in the boat. You're gonna, and he's using people here. In other words, you're going to fish for people. The sense is there are those who aren't part of the movement. They're not following Christ. And because of what you'll be doing, they will begin to follow Christ. It's, it's just hard to miss that. And yet I think sometimes the American church has. We find it hard to say to ourselves that the point of the Great Commission is to have a heart for and to find and to locate those who have yet to believe and then to see them come to faith in Christ and become disciples so that they in turn do the very same thing. We just get, um, and I think, to be gracious, unintentionally kind of hung up on like, well, disciple making is a, is a Bible study with the same two people for 10 years with a cup of coffee. Listen very carefully. I think that's a very healthy thing to do. That's a very good Bible study. But when it doesn't multiply, it's not disciple making. At the heart of the Great Commission or the fishing metaphor, at the heart of it is the sense of reproduction, multiplication, more, something that wasn't is now. We can't afford to miss that. So I want to encourage you to think about when you hear fishing is about people, it's about people who aren't fish yet. Can we say that? Who become fish. It's about people who aren't disciples who become disciples. This is why I do think you can be, watch this now, you can be discipling someone who's not a Christian. That probably catches you off guard. Like, what do you mean, Todd? Because what happens first? 
Someone has to become a Christian. They have to be born again. And so we ought to get to know people like that. We ought to witness and share our faith so that those who aren't yet saved will actually become a Christian. I think you, some people call that pre-evangelism. Some call it pre-discipleship, however you want to call it. In the Lord's mind, when he said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. He knew that meant there are some who aren't even disciples yet, but I will save them and then they'll become one of our family and then we'll disciple and we'll develop them into a fully devoted follower. Like it's all one thing. It's making disciples. And do we speak of it in parts? Sure we do. There's like evangelism, discipleship, pre-evangelism, all those words I think we can use. I don't think they're bad. I don't think they're always helpful. My point is this, in the Lord's mind, it's one thing, making disciples. Fishing for people. And does this occupy our minds? Does fishing for people capture our attention? Does this one thing that's in the call of the very first four followers, does it take center stage for our life? I want to be about fishing for people. Meaning, those who don't know Christ, who aren't followers, who aren't disciples, I want to be about finding and, and making folks disciples of Christ of all nations. Now, I admit to you this is a hard task. It means living outside yourself, thinking beyond yourself, living selflessly, and that's hard for all of us. You know, that doesn't come naturally. Could somebody say amen? The law of self-preservation means you're typically going to think of yourself first, and especially if you feel pressured or cornered, you're going to think, well, you're going to start guarding, protecting. That's pretty natural. So the question is then like, well, how do we then go after this great commission mindset? How do we be about fishing for people? This is the higher purpose, the bigger purpose. The answer is in our text. It's all in the pronoun me. It's all in the idea of spending time with Jesus. This is what the disciples were called to. They were called to be with him. In fact, if you were to take Matthew's gospel and kind of divide it up in an analytical fashion, you'll find that many commentators call the first several chapters the preparation phase, when he calls the disciples and he's simply with them for a long time. He knows that for them, watch this now, for them to give their life for him later, they must be with him now. That's right. Mark chapter 3, verse 14 says it best. Just jot that reference down. Look it up a little later. Jesus says he called the 12 to be with him. The key to really having a life and a focus that's about the higher purpose, which is fishing for people, is to know that we need time with Jesus. And the same is true for you as it is for them. You will not give your life for Jesus until you spend time with Jesus. In fact, can I just be plainly frank with you as your pastor? This is one of the reasons many so-called followers have no interest in fishing. Because their spiritual passions and affections have been lulled to sleep and dulled by time with every other thing but Jesus. That's right. 
we've been hobbied to spiritual death. How's your love for lost people? The more you're with Jesus, who came to seek and save the lost, the more you're rehearsing the gospel and seeing what he did for you when you were his enemy, the longer you linger in the truths of salvation, all those things, they just keep saturating your heart so that it keeps you tender to the purposes of God and the people who need to hear about him. But often we get distracted by so many things. And I'm guilty, like you. It's tempting, isn't it, to look and to chase horizontal affections. But what they do to us in the end is they dull us and they lull us to sleep, begin to lose a real sense of fervency. You see, I believe fervency for God is tied to frequency with God. And if you're just not with God very much, if your time with God is at best just sparse, don't be surprised if his purposes and his plan is second or third on your list at best. You want to change your fervency? Change your frequency. And get with God more and regularly. You'll find that his heart for lost people will become your heart. That leads me to the third observation, which is this. Fishing is a process. So I promise you, you'd feel really convicted, maybe even a little bit spiritually guilty, like, man, I'm feeling really like pressed on. Well, here's the place where you'll smile. Because I love the words in the story, make you fish for people. Isn't that beautiful? Like he says to them, follow me. I'll make you fish for people. He's owning something. The words there mean, uh, in, the, in their most basic form, it means to do. But there's a whole lot more behind the word than just like, I'm going to do something. It really means to be the author of something. It means to bring forth something over time. It means to accomplish an end result. This is all tied into this idea of, of, of making you. It means to make something ready to prepare it. Here's what Jesus is promising. Jesus is promising formation of the heart after God's heart. He's promising that what he's expecting, he will provide. That's why you should have a smile on your face. Because if I just laid this on you like, hey, if you're really a follower, you're going to make other people who aren't following like a focus of your life. You're going to be all about God's purposes. And if that was just a humanly driven thing, man, that's weighty. Like I'm leaving with a lot of to-dos and a lot of guilt and I'm going to fail, I'm going to quit. You would too. But when I read that Jesus said, I will make you fish for people. In other words, I'm going to own the formation of your heart. When you follow me, I'll make sure that in time, hear this church, in time and over time, You'll love what I love. You'll be about what I'm about. You'll have a heart like mine. It, thank you, Jesus. Amen. It's a beautiful principle of sanctification here that God is forming us. 
to love what he loves. It happens in time and over time. And I'm so thankful for that, aren't you? Yes, there's immediate positional change. And often we, when we're saved, we do see some quick um, changes in our external habits. But I'll just be a very frank and honest pastor with you. When, you come, when it comes to changing deep character flaws and things in our nature that have been depraved and have been in certain kind of habits for years, it takes some time. But God is not weak and he's not unlimited. He can change even the deepest flawed part of your character. Amen, church? And he can take people who are naturally only bent at protecting themselves and he can turn them into a missional, selfless people for his purposes. He can. In fact, I'll say this to you. That's what he does to his genuine followers because he promised, follow me and I will make you, I will bring this forth from you. I will work to this end. I will make you fish for people. I love that promise. Amen, church. Can I share with you that I've noticed this happening in my life, probably even well before our church was planted. I'm a slow learner in this one. I'm not a real great witnesser. Uh, I want to be a really good preacher, but sometimes for a number of years, I felt like that would substitute for being a fisher. Like I, I looked at myself like a preacher to people, not a fisher of people. In fact, it's a lot easier to preach to people than to fish for people. Do you know it's much easier to stand up here and preach to 900 people than it is to sit across the table from a lost person one-on-one and answer questions? (laughs) or to explain the reasoning for my faith, or the historical basis for the life of Christ. Like, those are things like, I'm not sure I'm ready for that, right? And so for years, I would just kind of run to the pulpit. Like, no, I'm a preacher to people. I share the gospel, and I give them a chance to respond. And the Lord would, year after year, just say, Todd, are you fishing for people, though? Is your life centered on my mission? of making disciples. And I would say, well, I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. And he'd say, yeah, that's your profession. But there'll be a day, Todd, when you won't be a pastor. There'll be a day, Todd, when you won't be preaching, but you'll still be a follower and I need you to still be fishing for people. And so just year after year, God just gradually formed in my heart to where I do love preaching I love pastoring, but I love being a person, a follower who also wants to fish for people. Because one day I'm going to be in those chairs. You know that, right? I'm going to be a church member like you. I want to be a good one, and I want to fish for people and be behind our church as it continues to be about God's purposes. So fishing is a process. Jesus has promised to do this in our life. I'm so thankful he is. So three things we've seen just at a high level, not digging really deep, just noticing three simple things in one verse, actually, in the actual words of Christ. That fishing really is the higher, the bigger purpose that we give our life to, regardless of our profession. So that really equalizes all of us, doesn't it? Like, hey, it doesn't matter what you do. There's a higher, bigger purpose. It's God's. Give your life to that. Stand on the platform he's given you 
and make sure his purposes are the filter you used for your decisions and your spending and your time and your investments. Fishing is also about people. And so we use things and we love people. We focus on people, not things and items. We're a people-centered operation. That's our goal because fishing is about people, especially lost people who have yet to hear of Christ. And it's a process. So when we, when we trip and when we stumble in this, man, we're going to trust that God will keep his word and form his heart in us. So really what you have here, if you think about it, is the profile of like a genuine follower of Jesus. I mean, if we want to ask ourselves, what's at the core of the call to follow Christ? We could not escape that he ties it inextricably to a fishing kind of posture. That's the first thing he mentions. Follow me, and the end result is you're going to fish for people. In other words, we're going to have this missional um, mindset about us. It'll be about the purposes of God. It'll be about those who've yet to hear. That's just going to be the general posture of our life. Lots of other things go on, admittedly. But if you were to cut all that away and look at the core of it, followers of Christ are all about fishing. In some way, this is what they think about. This is what they do. This is what they join forces for. It's the heart of God in them. So all of that combined, I think we could arrive at a pretty safe take-home truth that I hope stuns you, is eye-popping and heart-pounding and soul convicting. That there are no followers who don't eventually fish. Maybe you're saying to me, Todd, so if I'm hearing you right, You're saying that if over the span of time, even though I say I'm a Christian, if I find that I'm absent a heart like God's, then I'm probably not a follower. Over time, that's what's revealed. That I may not be following after all. Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. I think that's what God's word is saying. Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Is God's heart, over time and in time, being visibly seen and invisibly felt in your existence? Or is the heart of God a far and away concept that You agree to, but I'd never live my life for it. Here's the conversation you need to have with the person in the mirror. Maybe you're not following God. Maybe you're using God as a way to look good in front of people, have a good image, create a good sales pool. Name your reason for God. I'm sure folks have tried it. But that doesn't make someone a follower of Christ. This verse says, 
the story says, this first encounter of those disciples who were called to follow says this to me. You obey, you follow. It's relationship, it's his purposes. And over time and in time, he forms your heart to be like his. And you resemble your leader. Especially in the way you live missionally. And there's lots of freedom here. He's not worried about your profession. He's worried about your purpose. But if your purpose is yourself and not God's and there's no conviction and it's been that way for decades and yet you call yourself a Christian, I would say to you in all pastoral compassion and honesty, there's no biblical framework for your definition. And I would ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Am I really following Jesus? If you find you're in that spot, oh, I have good news for you. Jesus calls you today to follow him. He offers forgiveness for anyone who repents of following themselves, of trusting themselves. And if you just trust Jesus and follow him and immediately say what these four said, man, I'm leaving behind everything, I'm following you. That'll be my higher purpose Trust and believe that Jesus Christ died for you, was raised from the dead. The Bible says God saves those who repent and believe. That's what a follower is. And this is how a follower is shown. Because their heart over time and in time reveals itself to be like the heart of God. Now my spidey sense says this. Most of you are probably not struggling with that decision, though some I think are. Most of you are probably struggling with the one I struggle with. Like, man, I just want my heart for this to be hotter, to be bolder and brighter. Like, your heart does lean towards God's purposes, and yet you see all the ways that you stumble and trip and the hurdles, and so it frustrates you. You're saying, Todd, what, what, are some, what are one or two ways I can apply this so that my heart doesn't grow cold? So that I don't, you know, get lulled to sleep. I know I love Jesus. I know I'm following. But man, it's, it's difficult to just continue to think great commission. Fish for people. It's hard. I agree with you. It's hard. Can I just give you a couple of application points for those who's right now your heart is like, man, that's what I want. I want more of that. These are things that have helped me. I want to try to help you as well. But these two little action points are linked to one chain. And without this chain that I'm going to share with you, these two links fall off. So let me give you the first two links. Here's two things you can do starting today that will help you just increase your um, um, fervency. The first one's fluency. And by that I mean gospel fluency. Often, even in our desires to share our faith, to witness, to be bold to fish for people, to be involved in the Great Commission, we get right up to the edge and then we find ourselves stumbling on what to say. Like, oh, this person's ripe for a good conversation or a question, but I don't know if I, I'll I'll just uh, call my pastor. (laughs) Call my small group leader. We want to kind of shuffle them off like a project because we're not sure we know what to say. We can solve that, church. Here's how. Learn the gospel in 60 seconds or less. Just learn to say it. It's actually okay to have it learned by memory. Did you know that? It's not sinful to recite the gospel to yourself in the bathroom 
while you're driving and keep rehearsing so that when the time comes, you can say it well, accurately and quickly. That's not wrong. I mean, some of your best athletes, they shoot free throws all by themselves in the dark hundreds of times a day so that when it really matters, what do they do? They make it, right? Wouldn't you want to be spiritually the kind of person that practices and rehearses so that when the time comes, I can say it accurately and quickly and share the gospel. Amen. So get a timer on your phone, get it from the mirror, and just begin to make sure you can say the gospel in 60 seconds or less. Here are four words that I use. God, man, Christ response. And if I give each of those 10 to 12 seconds, I'll make it in 60 seconds. It's not the whole conversation. It's not the whole relationship. But at the moment of, of crossing the, the threshold, can I, when I see the doors open, I got to step inside. At that moment, will I know what to say? And can I say it compassionately and clearly? These four words help me. God, man, Christ response. There are other words. They're all just as good. These four are ones I like. So often I'll say this, at the right time I said, well, did you know that God made all of us in his image? He loves every single one of his creations. But in the beginning, his first creation, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. And so that put a distance between God and man. It's called sin. And so there's no way for Adam and Eve to fix that. There's no way for us to fix that. It's this eternal dilemma we're all in. We're separated from God. He's holy, we're not. But God sent Jesus who was God and, and man, and he now stands in for us. He's holy, and yet he's human. He was perfect, everything God was asking for. And so he came, he lived for us, he died for us perfectly, he was raised again. So Jesus now is the bridge across this cavern that I'm facing between me and God. Jesus stands in for us. He died for me, was raised and so now God asks for all people everywhere to respond to Jesus. And do we believe that Jesus is the only way back to God? So I just ask you, like, do you want to believe today that Jesus is your only way to be reconciled to God? That's often what I'll say to someone over lunch or in a conversation. That's about a 60-second moment when I share gospel truth quickly, succinctly. And I've practiced that probably a thousand times when no one was around. There are certain parts of it I like better. Other versions use other words, that's fine. You gotta go with what works for you. I like the bridge illustration the best. There's other kinds of methods. There's the Romans road. There's the three circles. Um, there's all kinds of ways to describe the gospel quickly and with you know metaphors. I'm just saying to you, when you come to that moment, if you work on fluency when no one's looking, you'll have it when it really matters. And can we as a church just agree that we're going to try to make sure every single person can share the gospel accurately and compassionately in 60 seconds or less? I think that'd be very helpful. So when you go home, work with your spouse, your small group, your friends, pull the timer out and say, okay, see how I do. We did this with our staff, by the way. Every staff had to share the gospel in 60 seconds. And you'd be surprised how many of us got nervous in front of our own workmates, Right. It'll be good for you. Fluency is one thing that will help you with your confidence and keeping your heart hot for God's purposes. Here's the second word. It's proximity. I discovered that when I'm not around people who need the gospel, I grow cold toward the gospel. So I'm encouraging you to 
have a lot of pagans for friends and party for the right reasons, okay? <laughs> a little tongue-in-cheek there. But isn't it amazing how many of us build bubbles? Let me wonder why we have no one to witness to. I want you to get out into your world. I want you to do what you can to rub shoulders with folks who need that. For some of you, that's no problem. You're around a lot of them. For me, I have to go the extra mile to be around a lot of lost people. Most of my world is in the church. And so for that reason, I've, years ago, I just began to do a number of things in a repeated fashion to keep me connected to lots of lost people. That's why I usually go to the same place to eat so I can build relationships with those who take orders or waiting tables or just, you know, whatever in the restaurant. I go to the same gym. I try to go to the same bank. And there's some adjustments we make, but I try to do a lot of the same things. I'm a very routine person anyway, which is not always the best thing for my family. Sometimes it frustrates them. But this, I found that routines to get me out of the church environment have been very helpful. And so I have to depend on those things to get me in connection with lost people. I just don't naturally run in the lost people circles. If I didn't watch it, I could come to work and go home and that would happen day after day and I wouldn't meet a single lost person I know about. That's not healthy for Christians. Let me ask you a question. Do you know lost people? Most of you will say yes. Here's the next question. Which of those lost people are you actively seeking to make into a disciple. If it takes you more than 10 seconds to give a name, you're not seeking anyone. So you have the 60-second test, and now you got the 10-second test. Take both of them this week. Ask your family, hey, who are you seeking to make a disciple? And if no name comes in 10 seconds, just say, you need to get a name. <laughs> like your heart's not really leaning towards lost people. You, you must not be aware of them. They're all over. Let's just build some proximity to them. Okay, so fluency and proximity. But hear this. Those two things hang on the chain of intensity. What I mean by that is this. Our fervency and our love for Jesus drives every bit of that. And if I'm just extremely frank with you, the reason we don't pursue better fluency and greater proximity is because often we lack intensity in our relationship with Jesus. I'll say it to you even plainer. We just don't love Jesus the most. We have other idols in our life. We love other things more than we love Jesus. I fight this battle. I suspect you do too. Most days in my life, I have to have the mindset that I've got to be about killing my idols or they're going to kill me. They want to steal my attention, weaken my love, detour and distract my focus so that God's purposes are not what my life's about, regardless of my profession. Idols want to do the same thing to you. And you've got to have the courage to call out an idol when you see it. In our town, sports and money are two big ones. How do they connect? You'd be surprised at them parents who pay exorbitant fees 
for their child to have a certain look. Join this team. Get in that group. Buy this bag. Wear this apparel. Have this name. They spend so much money just to make sure someone says you're good and their kid looks a certain way. Am I against those clubs or traveling teams? Not at all. I'm not against them. But if you're looking to them for approval and to establish your purpose in life, it's going to strangle you and kill you. There's nothing life-giving about that. Could those be platforms and areas where you could bring the gospel? Sure, that'd be fantastic. But you can't feed off that to nourish your soul. You must love Jesus the most. Amen. Amen. He must be king of your life. So that when he says, follow me, you immediately do what he says. That's the first story, guys, okay? That's how much, that's the intensity with which we must love Jesus. When that is solved, when that fuels in our tank, then I think proximity, fluency, those kind of take their place naturally. And I'm not trying to skirt the issue. I just sometimes think our problems aren't as hard as we make them out to be. It's not that complicated. I talk about what I love. You know that? If you get around me for long, I'm going to talk about Julie. I've not had a class in Julie Talkology. I've not been to a seminar. I didn't read a book. I just love that woman. And it shows. And in time, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to arrange my schedule around it. I just do things because I'm dramatically in love with her. Does that make sense? And you're the same way with your spouse probably. And there's things about certain hobbies that are that way that aren't wrong. What we love comes out. That's why I don't think it's complicated. And when you love Jesus, I'm just a believer that it'll come out. In one way or another, it's going to affect your schedule, your spending, your speech. So I'm asking you, even with these tips, even with these links, even with these three realizations, at the core of every bit of this is this question. Do we love Jesus most? When we do, we will lean our life against his purposes, regardless of our profession. We'll be about people, and we'll find that over time and in time, God is forming our heart to be like his. And that will bring such a smile to our face that he's keeping his promise and sanctifying us to be missional in every way.